Well, good morning. I just want to say it's good to be back in my own bed for the last two nights. My wife and I and the kids and the Ericsons spent a whole week, uh, most of us sleeping in cinder block dorms that normally little young kids sleep in. It was a great time, I met a lot of great people, learned about a lot of new missions out there, not new, new for us, but missions that are going on. It was great to see God working and see God moving, um, so we had a really good time. The kids made some new friends. Uh, I think the farthest away is uh, Caleb and Abigail made some friends in Paris, France, from Paris, France, so uh, it was a good time, a great time, but it's good to be home, and it's good to be digging into God's Word, so... Uh, we are in Isaiah 56, so if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. We live in a world of collisions. No, not the ones that happen out here on the road, but we live in a place in the world today where the righteous is going to interact, and sometimes, many times today, especially in today's society, actually collide with the reprobate. With those things that are of the world, those things are, that are not holy, that are not righteous, we are constantly going to be encountering a world that is hurting, a world that is being led astray. And so we collide together and we have a choice to make. What are we going to do? As believers in Christ, we have a mandate from Christ himself to, as, as you are going, so as you are living your life, as you are going into your life during the week, we are to be making disciples. And in that, in that going, we're going to collide with those things that are not of God. And we have this choice to make. There are times that, that we should and we can isolate. We, can, we, can, we come back together again, and, and we, or we come and we find ourselves, we need to dig into Scripture. Jesus many times would go off to pray by himself. Why? He to reconnect, re-energize, to, to uh, fully understand what the will of the Father was. And we need to do that. The problem is, is when we do that and we stay there. And we, we get comfortable in that. The other option that we could do is we could, we could accommodate. We, we could allow it. We could say, I'm going to be part of it. I'm going to be in it. I'm going to do those things too. Fooling ourselves into thinking that, well, if we do those things, we could save the people inside of it. That's not... It leads us astray. So that doesn't work either. The third thing we can do is we could engage the culture, which is what we should do. Because we engage it, we can change it, we can influence it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did not to spend all of his time with the 12 disciples. He was known as a sinner. He was known to be friends of tax collectors and drunkards and prostitutes. He engaged the community. He never condoned what they did. He never did what they did. But he was engaged with them, and he was helping them, and he was trying to influence them. And that's what you and I are supposed to do. And yes, we do need to go back and we need to isolate ourselves at times. But we also need to engage our culture. And I'm afraid that today too many churches are not engaging the culture. This morning I was sitting watching a video and it, it, it hit me and I think we're our small group, not this week obviously because we'll be folding clothes, but next week we're going to watch that video on why has the church lost its influence on the culture. Because we have. We must strive 
to engage and influence our culture and in the collisions of our lives, that is where we have the opportunity to do so. Matthew 13 shares a parable of our life in the world of good and evil. Jesus is teaching. He says, he put, it says he put another parable before them. And these are his kingdom of heaven parables. It says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Well, I can relate to that. I'm a gardener. I love to, I love to garden. And so he sowed good seed. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Luckily, my neighbors don't do that. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds, appe- the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in our field? He says, how then, they said, how then do we, do we have these weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then you want us to, to go out and you want us to gather them, to, to, to gather those weeds? He says, oh, no. No, lest gathering of the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. They didn't pull the weeds out. Each day I go out and I find weeds and I, I pluck them and I pluck them and I pluck them. And sometimes I have to be very careful because especially early on in planting, if I pluck them, what happens to the plant? The good plant. It comes right up with it. So Jesus says, this is like the kingdom of heaven is like this. We are, we are living in the kingdom of heaven now. Jesus brought it in when he came. We'll live in it even more so when he comes back again. So they didn't pull out the weeds. They didn't transplant the the good plants into a weed-free zone. No. The weeds and the plants grew together. The weeds and the wheat grew side by side. And what's going to happen? God is going to sort them out in the end. We live side by side with people in our world who range from being indifferent to God to outright hatred and antagonism towards God and towards anything having to do with Him. So what we must do is we must engage our community, our world, with Christ. Because that's what Jesus did. He did not shy away. He engaged them. He touched people's lives. That's what we need to do. But it's very hard for us, as Americans especially. There was a time in in the life of our country when our institutions actually promoted belief in God, actually supported Christianity, held it in a place of honor, Government, both government and private organizations, even though they were not religious, would hold Christianity in honor. God was honored in our government schools and in the public square. Our laws, at their core, had a core Christian ethic in it. The root of our laws was the law of God. Now, we must come to the realization 
that the documents that have governed us and governed our nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are not and have never been overtly Christian. There is no mention of Jesus, Christianity, the Trinity, or salvation in any of these documents. They are not inherently, meaning overtly, at their core, blatantly Christian. But we do know that our founding fathers, many of them, not all of them, had a strong faith in Jesus Christ. And many of these men were the ones who wrote those documents. But over time, what we see is we see the decay in the impact that belief in Jesus Christ has in the lives of those we elect to govern us. And even those who proclaim that they are believers don't exactly act that way once they sense and they get that taste of power. And I believe it's getting worse with each election to the point where I wonder if we were e- what we're even going to have an election coming up next year. It's going to be harder and harder to live out our belief in Christ as we're surrounded by unbelievers who are living out their unbelief in front of us. Social media has not helped. Has not helped at all. People who proclaim to be Christian will say the most terrible things online or will post the most awful pictures online just to get attention. That's why we have chosen as a family to shelter our kids for the most part from social media as much as possible unless we are there watching it with them. But in that same instance, in the fact that we have the world living out their their unbelief in front of us, it gives us an awesome opportunity to shine the gospel into their lives. To shine the gospel, this bright light, into a dark world. And believe me, it's not me who changes people's lives. It's God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who changed their lives. I'm just a conduit. I'm just the presenter. I am not the one who changed people. It's the gospel, God's holy word, that does. And it's the Holy Spirit who speaks to them. And as I was reading Isaiah 56 this week, this it was Monday. Yeah, Monday I was I was while everybody else was um, going to different conferences, I was sitting writing the sermon and, and praying and, and reading different parts of Scripture. I come to realize that the same thing that we're dealing with today, Isaiah is dealing with in his day. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, and he's right. Now, granted, the, the, the environment may be a little different. They didn't have social media back then. Social media was the runner who would run from the battlefield to come and tell you about it. Social media were, was the uh, person who sat at the gate and knew everybody who was coming in and would tell stories. That was social media. Today, it's instantaneous and it's dangerous because there's a lot of falsehood in it. But he's dealing with the same problems and the same people, the same kind of people that we deal with today. Let's go to Isaiah 56, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. 
Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So right there, you ask me, well, how do you know, Pastor, that that was what was going on back in the time of Isaiah? How do you know that it was like it was is today? Because right here, if God is telling us to do these things, that means there are people who are not. And not only are there people in the world that are not, there are Israelites who are God's chosen people who are not doing these things. Just as today, there are people who call themselves Christians who don't do these things. Isaiah lived 600 years before the birth of Christ. And yet here we see God saying that righteousness and salvation will be revealed soon. 600 years after this, Jesus comes and reveals salvation and righteousness. Soon? Remember, Jesus told us, I'll come again soon. He's coming soon. It says in the book of Revelation, He's coming soon. Soon? It's been 2,000 years. That's not soon in my book. I don't know about you. I wish I could, you know, tell the bank, yeah, I'll pay my credit card soon. And 2,000 years later, I'll finally get it paid. Well, wait a minute. There are some people. That's what it will take. Soon. Huh. We got to remember that God's ways are not our ways. What seems like an eternity to us, to God, is just a snap of the finger, a blink of an eye. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.8 that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And while the Jewish people in Isaiah's time may have had the return of the, from the exile in their minds, when reading Isaiah 56, the actual deliverance from Babylon is actually what's called a foreshadowing of our deliverance from sin. Many times in Scripture, God will use a metaphor, or will use an instance to show them in that time. And then we today look at that and we're like, well, that sounds similar to what's going on and what's going to happen with us. It's a foreshadowing. The deliverance from Babylon's captivity is a foreshadowing of a much greater deliverance that at Isaiah's time, would be through Jesus Christ to deliver us from the captivity of sin. So as we're living, as we are the wheat that are in the garden, living amongst the weeds, how are we to live? As we wait for the day of harvest, as we wait for that time when, when the weeds will be taken out of the way and we will have the wheat will be gathered and, and going to his storeroom. How are we to be? How are we to live until Christ returns? And what should our lives look like? Because verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 56 that I just read speak not just to Israel, but to us. We are to keep justice and we're to do righteousness. And many times in Scripture, if it says it one time, it means something. If it says it two times, you really need to listen if it says it three times, it's you better have listened to it. Second Peter 3 mirrors the verses of Isaiah telling us and what he tells us in verses 1 and 2. Verses 11 and 12 of Second Peter 3 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning all the world is going to be dissolved. It's all going away. 
All those things we store up in our bank, all the things we store up in our storage area. We were just talking yesterday about the fact that, man, having a storage area would probably be the business to be in because everybody has their stuff and everybody doesn't have enough room for their stuff. But you know, one day, that's all going to burn away. It's all going to be gone. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We're supposed to be holy and godly, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Our lives are to reflect holiness and godliness. It's not just that on the surface we need to look holy and act godly. No, it needs to be at the core. I've been talking to people about the problems with Bethel Church and and a lot of the issues this week. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't see it. But I always tell them, listen, if the root is bad, the fruit is bad. If I, if, if I stand and I don't, and I act like I'm holy and I act like I'm righteous, but the reality at the core, I am not holy and righteous, which I'm not without the power of the Holy Spirit working in me and changing me, and me constantly repenting of my thoughts and taking captive my thoughts, then I'm not holy and righteous. Our lives need to reflect it. And part of that is reaching out to a world that's dying in their sins. We are to be welcoming the outcast. In verse 3 of Isaiah 56, says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. It was possible, it is possible for someone who's not a Jew to become a Jew. You go through this whole process, you have to be baptized, you have to go through these, this whole issue, these whole different ceremonies, and then you're Jewish. Just like that. And you're to live the life of a Jewish person, following the Torah, following the laws and the commands. But not everybody who lived amongst the Israelites were Jewish. They were foreigners, but they lived amongst them. They were, they were men who were eunuchs. We know of one, obviously, when Philip ran into the one on the road, and he, would, he worked for the queen of, of Ethiopia. He would work in the palace amongst the women, so they had to castrate him so that they didn't have to worry about him doing things he wasn't supposed to. He was not tempted to do those things. It was a... Well, I'll get to that in a minute. But who is the foreigner? Who, who is the foreigner today? It's, it's you and I. We are Gentiles. We are not of the line of Abraham. At least we think we're not. Some of us may be, but that's, that's neither here nor there. We are Gentiles. We are excluded from the old covenant. Unless we convert to Judaism, we are, have no, no part in the old covenant. We're out. We cannot enter the kingdom of God because we are not Jewish. 
Look at the exclusivity of the covenant. Back in Deuteronomy 23.2, it says, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. So, if you have somebody who is married to someone who's not a Jew, and that person doesn't convert to Judaism, that's a forbidden union. And to ten generations, those children, children's 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 children, cannot come into the fellowship of God according to the old covenant. We would all be excluded. But see, you and I, because of Jesus Christ, because of what He did, we can now proclaim that we are no longer excluded because Jesus came and filled, fulfilled the old covenant and brought us into the new blood covenant through the cross. And the barrier to foreigners has been removed. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. He won't. Why? Because we live under a new covenant through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Otherwise, we would have been lost. In the book of Ephesians, Paul's reminding them, because they were Gentiles, in in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 12, says, Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were lost. You were not... You could not, could not approach God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The door's open. All of us, all can come. If you seek God, you will find Him. All can come. But they must come through Christ. They must believe and call Him Lord, and now they can approach God, and they are part of God's family. We are now, because of Christ, we are now heirs to the promises given to Abraham. And those who enter are radically different than they once were. They've been cleansed from all the defilements of their lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled faces, he's, he's hearkening back to when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He had been in the presence of God and they had to veil his face because he shined so much. But now it has been lifted. Beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what does this is the redemptive work of Christ. I'm sure many of you have experienced where you encounter a person and you're like, wow, they drip Jesus. <laughs> Meaning that you're just standing in their presence, you can see they love Christ so much. I've met some people this week like that. They love Christ so much that it just exudes, it comes out of them. There's no other way around it. So we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So we're now included. So what does that mean? As God's chosen people, what, what do we get? You know, we all we all want to know, what do I get? If I do this, what are what are the good things about it? What are the bad things about it? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? Well, 
You know, when we go to when we go to get a new job and we're we're looking and they say, well, we'd like to hire you. Here's what we're offering. You're like, well, let's see. I got to work more hours, but I get more pay. I get more vacation. I get, you know, we go through the pluses and minuses. So what is the inclusion's reward? What do we get? What is the benefit? As humble, transformed outsiders, we will receive some very, very rich blessings. And these are in Isaiah 56, verse 4. It says, For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. We have to understand, to be a eunuch was shameful. For a man to have that area of his body cut off is a shame. You were looked down upon. But here God is saying, I'm going to hold you in honor. You're like, oh, wait a minute, God, I've done way too many bad things. You can't. He says, no, I know. I know everything you've done. I know everything that's been done to you. Be faithful to me and I will honor you. I will change your name. I will give you more honor than my own sons and daughters. More honor than the Israelites themselves. Isaiah is using what's called old covenantal language of keeping the Sabbath. He's not just talking about, yeah, going to, for the Jew, going to going to synagogue on Friday night at 6 o'clock and, and, and not working until 6 o'clock Saturday evening. That's not what he's talking about. Keeping the Sabbath goes much deeper than that. Keeping the Sabbath means not only not, not, dis, not, not dishonoring the Sabbath, but also not dishonoring anybody else in your keeping of the Sabbath. If you're, if you're keeping the Sabbath and it causes you to not love someone, you're not keeping the Sabbath anymore. You just broke it. Jesus himself told the Pharisees, he says, now wait a minute, which one of you on a Sabbath day, if, you, if you, your sheep falls into a ravine, is going to leave the sheep in there till the next day? My paraphrase. Obviously, you're going to go down, you're going to work to get that sheep out of that, cra- that crevice. If you don't, you're dishonoring the sheep. But he's using this old covenantal language of keeping the laws and the sacrificial system. But even the sacrificial system is nothing more than the type and shadow of the salvation that we have through Christ. See, in the old system, in the sacrificial system, you do these things to get redeemed by Christ, redeemed by God, and to cover your sins. And so you keep the Sabbath so God loves you. It was, it was all about what you did. That's gone. Now we do these things. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for us. He paid the price for us. And as, as our way of saying we love Christ, we love God, we do these things. We keep the Sabbath. We honor each other. We live righteous and holy lives. Why? Not so that I get more saved. It's not possible. So that because of what Christ did for me, 
That's why I do it. Jesus brought in a new covenant. The requirement is really quite simple. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust Him with all of your heart. Repent of your sins and believe and you will be brought near to God and you will be given a new heart. Will will all those struggles go away? Oh, I wish. I wish I didn't have all those struggles that I have had my whole life, those things that pop into my head, the anger that wants to boil up inside of me. I wish that would just be gone. But I tell you, I, I handle it much better with Christ than I did before. Trust Him. He will completely change you. And as those of us who are believers, He completely changes us every day. That's why Paul said that in 2 Corinthians up there. He says, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Not, he says, it's not, he says not, we're not transformed. We're being transformed. It's, it's present, past, present, future action. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is not a one and done and we're made perfect. It is a process over and over. Every day, you and I can wake up and we can be made new. So I screwed up. Great. Guess what? I can go to Christ and he will forgive me. And guess what? I can go to the person I hurt and I can ask for forgiveness and they could not forgive me. But hey, I ask for forgiveness. Because if I don't, it's going to eat me alive. Believe in Christ as your Savior. Trust in Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Repent daily. Believe that you will be brought near to God and given a new heart. You will be completely changed by the Holy Spirit, transformed to meet all the requirements to enter the temple of God. Paul told the church at Ephesus, he says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Huh. Oh, you mean so as you go, make disciples? Yeah, that's what Paul's talking about. Speak the truth to your neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. See, that's there's there it is. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but don't sin. Don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. And give no opportunity to the devil, because when you do that, you give him a foothold. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that they, he may have something to share with anyone in need. <laughs> Why does God provide for us? Why does God provide so much? So that we can share with those who have need. That's why. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, all we have is a shoulder to cry on or an arm to put around somebody, but sometimes God provides us things that, oh, I have this, and I'm supposed to give it to you. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Hmm. 
I'm afraid I've done that sometimes. And I've had to repent of it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we, if we have Christ, we will strive to live that way. And we will not do it perfectly. Only one human ever did. And he wasn't fully human. He was fully human, fully God. He was both. That was Jesus. He's the only one who did this perfectly. But we have an example of what it, who, who, how it's done. It can be done. And when we do this, we believe in Christ we live this way, the temple in the temple are, we will find our names in a place that's even greater than those of God's chosen people. We will be in the Lamb's book of life. We will have a permanent, permanent place of honor in the household of God. When God puts us in there, no one can take us out. Jesus says, all of the ones that God, my Father, has given me, no one can pluck them out of my hand. You can't be taken out of God's hand. Jesus tells John in the book of Revelation, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name now either 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 we're all going to have tattoos or it's metaphorical he's writing his name on us he's putting his ownership on us we are his bought with a price we belong to him it's a badge of honor Currently in our world today, in those collisions that we keep having with this world, whether it's culture, whether it's, you know, I'm not even going to go into the list because I'm afraid there's words I cannot say and still be online. That banging of culture, that... That is where we know that no matter what the world says, we are precious in God's sight. The new heaven and the new earth that are coming soon, the new Jerusalem will be our home, and we're going to be transformed inside and outside by the power of the Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus Christ, forever as adopted sons and daughters of God, having all the rights and privileges God for God's chosen people. Romans 10, 11-12 says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Oh, the world will try but they won't succeed ultimately because the only, the only opinion that matters is Jesus Christ himself. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Let's go to verses 6 and 7. It's talking about the Sabbath. It says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to, to love the name of the Lord, 
and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of my of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. We honor the Lord's day when we gather together around the world and celebrate, looking ahead to the new creation that's to come. See, when we gather, we're blessed because God God accepts our worship. If it's from the heart, if it is true, our sacrifice of praise. We fulfill this prophecy that Jesus quotes, quotes, as he's, you know, he quotes this as he's turning over the tables. He's telling them, my, God's got, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, and you've made it a den of thieves. That's where he gets it from. It's from Isaiah. It's to be for all people. And as we gather the prey, the exiles will be gathered in. And new exiles will come in. And verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You know, the Jews, they had a special place. And God's gathering them. He says, no, no, no. There's more people outside of you. He's talking about us. God's going to bring a remnant of the exiles out of Babylon. But God has a much bigger gathering planned. And who's he going to gather? John 11. Verses 51 to 52 says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being, high, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Those who are scattered are the elect non-Jews who have who've been chosen since the foundations of the world, according to Paul who will be gathered in the name of Jesus Christ into one place. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The fact that uh, the city of Zion is going to be expanded because there's not going to be enough room. Jerusalem is going to be too small. God delights in His salvation plan that He will bring those humble people who once were excluded, who are now included, can come and worship Him forever and ever. But the problem is that God first has to deal with an issue. Verses 9 to 12 of Isaiah 56. All you beasts of the field, come to devour all the beasts in the forest. Come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. Adam understands that. He's a bunch of puppies at his house. Dogs have a mighty appetite. <laughs> We're getting there. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Fools. The leaders are fools. It's the judgment on the watchmen of Israel. It's the judgment on the watchmen of our day. The pastors and leaders of some of our churches who are not preaching the gospel, who are not giving the word, but are actually gathering for themselves what they want and what they need. 
Their responsibility is to serve people by leading them into God's presence. Instead, they're taking advantage of them. There's no fear of judgment. But they're complacent and lazy people living their lives to the fullest and not realizing that judgment is right around the corner. At the end of the age, God is going to separate the wheat and the weeds. Judgment is coming. Are we living to fill our stomach for the flesh? Or are we watching and are we ready? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. You, we are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In a world of collisions between righteousness and reprobate, we must be on our guard. The world will be this way until the end. It's not going to be better. It's not going to get better. And we must look at it as... Now, I want to be honest with you. I, I, I say that. Now, there are some more... There are wonderful things in this world. There are wonderful things that God is doing. Okay? But I want to tell you that it, the world is not going to get better. But we have to look at this as an opportunity to share the gospel with those we collide with and those who are perishing as the elect, we will, be, we will be surrounded by weeds of this world and, 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 and the world is going to pound on us and we have to strive to complete the task that Jesus has set before us. The very ones we are trying to rescue may beat us up. Many times, the very ones that should be rescuing with us will beat us up until they surrender to the Holy Spirit's call in their heart. Don't give up. And if God has called you to leadership... Be faithful. Be the watchman on the wall who's constantly awake and watching for the return of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray.